So uh, next June, uh, Stephanie and I, my wife, we will celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. And uh, the fact that I convinced Stephanie to marry her is yet another demonstration that miracles still happen. <laughs> now, as most of you know, I stalked or passionately pursued her while we were in college. Truthfully, though, like, like many couples, our romance was born out of a friendship. We found ourselves hanging out with the same group of friends. Rather, I became friends with her friends <laughs> so that we could all hang out together. So anyway, we found ourselves hanging out with one another, and it wasn't long before we ourselves became really good friends. We enjoyed one another's company. We had similar passions, and I thought she was really, really, really hot. <laughs> and I still do. The point is, though, we found ourselves spending a lot of time together. Yet amidst all this energy, this sweetness, right? <laughs> there, there, there came a point where we needed to have a conversation. We needed to have a talk. We needed to have what is affectionately called a DTR. Can anyone tell me what the letters DTR stand for? Define the relationship. Anyone who has been in a relationship with the opposite sex knows what this is. It's, it's that awkward yet critically important conversation where you and your friend open up and reveal your feelings for one another and then come to some kind of consensus as to what you are. Are we just friends? Are we dating? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend, right? You see, a DTR, as the name implies, it clarifies the dynamics of the relationship. It answers the question, what are we? In fact, you know why having a DTR is so important? It's so important because the relationship cannot move forward without it. This is to say a relationship cannot progress in a healthy way if the people involved don't know where they stand in each other's eyes. Have you ever had a DTR before? If you're married, my guess is you have. Now, you may not have called it a DTR, but my guess is at some point along the way, you had a conversation. You probably remember where it was. To make sure, please hear me, you weren't misreading the relationship. Because look, disastrous things can happen when you misread a relationship, right? There's that scene in the movie Dumb and Dumber when Jim Carrey's character, he goes up to this beautiful, wealthy, attractive woman and he goes up to her and he says, look, give it to me straight. What are the chances of a guy like me marrying a girl like you? And she looks at him and she says, not a lot. <laughs> and he says, okay, not good. You mean like one in a hundred? And she says, 
one in a million. But then do you remember his response? He says, he's like, so you're telling me there's a chance. Right? <laughs> okay. But he, he totally, he misread the relationship. Right? Well, as disastrous as it can be to misread a relationship with the opposite sex, it can be even more disastrous to misread a relationship with God. In fact, think for a moment. You don't have to say it out loud, but how do you understand your relationship to God? Better yet, what do you understand your place to be in that relationship? This morning, we're going to study the most important chapter in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and arguably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And that is 2nd Samuel 7. And you know why this chapter is so important? It's so important because in this chapter, God makes a covenant with David. You see, as we've talked about before, in the Bible, the covenants that are spelled out, they provide the backbone, or maybe you could say the skeletal structure upon which the overarching biblical narrative hangs. And as we're about to see in the weeks to come, all of God's saving purposes, all of God's saving plans are funneled through and come through God's covenant with David. Yet, before God makes a covenant with David, we read in the opening verses of 2 Samuel, of 2 Samuel 7, before the covenant is made, we read of a short exchange, you could say, between David and the Lord. And while this exchange is short, and at first glance it seems rather insignificant, nothing could be further from the truth. And you know why? Because in this text, God and David have a DTR. God, through the prophet Nathan, lets David know who David is before the Lord. And you know what, Faith? In this DTR where we kind of see the, the right relationship that David has to have with God, in this DTR, we learn a foundational truth that not only applies to David, but I want to argue also us today. In fact, I want to suggest that we'll never be able to understand the rest of 2 Samuel 7 and God's covenant and how it applies to us unless we first know and embrace the truth that is taught in just the first seven verses. And what is that truth? Well, turn within your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. That's page 259 in that paperback Bible. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. Last week, we looked at the end of 2 Samuel 6, which records David bringing the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, into Jerusalem. And in the overall story of 2 Samuel, this, this event is quite significant. For you know what it signifies? 
It signifies that only when the presence of God and his kingship is established amongst his people, that then a discussion about Israel's kings can take place. So, so David, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city. And do you remember how David acted when the Ark was brought into the city? Do you remember? What was David doing? Dancing and singing before the Lord. He was so happy, wasn't he? In fact, everyone, the text says, was happy. Well, everyone except who? Michael, David's wife. And why wasn't she happy? Indeed, why did she despise David, her husband in her heart? Because she did not think that David was acting dignified. She believed his joyful dancing before the Lord was inappropriate for a king. And you really cannot have two more opposing behaviors at the end of this chapter, right? Michael is stewing, is angry, can't wait to get in the car and drive home and read David the riot act, right? And David is just happy full of joy and dancing. And why is David full of joy and dancing in a linen ephod, which was a priestly garment? Why is he taking off his kingly robes and instead dancing before the Lord? Is it because he is foolish? Is it because he is crass? No, the reason is, is because David, please hear me, he lost himself in the presence of something far greater than himself, and that's the Lord. He had blessed self-forgetfulness. And that's the essence of true humility. Where pride is relentless concentration on the self. Pride is this self-absorbed. Humility is relentless concentration on God, His glory, His majesty, His beauty, and what He requires of us. That's David. And you'll recall that this episode in David's life taught us this important lesson, and that is humility is dignity. The most important behavior and attitude in every situation is humility. And we learn that humility does two things. It exalts God's honor above your own, and it exalts God's opinion Above others, humility, we could say, is God-absorbed, not self-absorbed. So the ark of the Lord, the very presence of God amongst his people, has returned to Jerusalem, and the stage is now set for what's going to take place in 2 Samuel 7. So if you haven't already, please turn there with me. Uh, we're actually, because this is such an important chapter in how it ties in with the, with the rest of the Bible. We're actually going to spend several weeks in 2 Samuel 7. So this morning, what I want to do is I just want to focus in on the first seven verses and the truth that is clearly taught there. But to get the, uh, the immediate context, I'm gonna, I'll be reading down to verse 11. And you're going to notice that the chapter begins with a real noble idea by David. You can see if you can figure out what it is, okay? So follow along with me as I read 2 Samuel 7, beginning verse 1 down to, to verse 11. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. This is, you can almost see echoes from Genesis 3, rest. 
rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Can you, can you figure out what David wants to do? Can you piece it together? Now, how many of you have been camping before? How many of you like camping? Okay. I, I mentioned this to you before. My, my parents never took me camping. You know why? Because they love me. <laughs> truly, truly, camping, camping isn't glamorous, is it? It isn't. It's, well, look, it's better to be in a nice, warm, comfortable home than cold outside in a flimsy tent, right? Okay, I think this is an obvious observation, right? Well, notice, this is precisely what David is thinking in these verses. He has a comfortable home. Why not build one for the Lord? David, notice, has a zeal for the Lord in these verses, and that's commendable. And notice, Nathan, the prophet, is picking up what David is laying down. So notice, Nathan tells David, you know what? Go for it. Do it. You notice what happens next. Look at verse 4. So I, I imagine this is later in the day. They had dinner. They're talking. And then notice what we see, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You know what God is saying? He's saying, David, I'm good. More than that, he's saying, David, I don't need your service. In fact, God says, I have a reason why I haven't asked for a home yet. And we're going to get to more of that in a little bit later here. And then look at what God does next. He makes it clear, please hear me, that God doesn't need David, but rather that David needs God. Indeed, God points out that he's the one who's been sustaining him this whole time. Look at verses 8 to 11. This is again the Lord speaking to the prophet Nathan. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Amen and amen. Uh, who can tell me which professional golfer grew up here in Goshen, Kentucky? Justin Thomas, that's right. The PGA champion was born and raised right here in Goshen, Kentucky. Now, Justin Thomas currently lives in Florida, and last year, his parents, who have a house just right up the road, last year, he decided to build his parents a house down in Florida as well. What a nice gesture, wouldn't you say? And honestly, that's really not that uncommon, is it? Lots of professional athletes, we find, like to build homes for their parents. However, athletes aren't the only ones who have the, a practice of building homes for others. Now, several commentators have pointed out that this was a common practice of kings in the ancient Near East. However, the homes they were building were not for their parents, but rather for the gods that they worshipped. In fact, historians tell us that kings in the ancient Near East would often build or restore a temple for their god, and then that king would receive a promise regarding his reign or victories from that god. This is to say the king would build for his god and then he would get a blessing. You notice we see the exact opposite pattern in the passage I just read, don't we? This is a significant contrast, again, that's setting up the one true and living God as remarkably different than anything else on the face of the earth. As the Lord makes clear through the prophet Nathan, despite David's noble aspirations, God shuts the whole thing down. And God says that David will not build a house for the Lord so that the Lord can bless him. No, instead, and in contrast to all the false gods of that time, we see that God is going to be the initiator who both builds the house and blesses David. God puts his home on the back burner so that he can bless his servant David. Faith, our God is a God of grace upon grace, a God who gives and gives and gives and gives. And faith, here's the important lesson we learn from these opening verses from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's, it's a lesson that God was graciously teaching David, and it's that's this. And that is, friend, God doesn't need you. You need him. God does not need you. You need him. This was the truth that noble, bright-eyed, full of zeal David had to learn. And it's a truth that we need to learn today as well. And I cannot overstate how important it is that we understand this and believe it. You know why? Because this is the foundational truth upon which all of God's saving promises and actions are built. Salvation is from the Lord from start to finish, amen? 
You see, I want to argue God is having a DTR with David. God is graciously reorienting David to have a right understanding of his relationship with him. And it's a reorientation that we must have as well. Friend, God doesn't need you. You need him. And can I ask, do you believe this? Do you really believe, friend, that God doesn't need you, but that you desperately need him? Let me ask it this way. Have you misread your relationship with God? And perhaps think that, please hear me, you contribute in some way to your salvation? Do you believe that it's the work of Jesus? Yes, but plus my own righteousness, my own charity work, my own kind deeds, my own righteousness that will save me and make me right and fit for heaven? Friend, please hear me. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but please hear me. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You need Christ and Christ alone to save you. Or Christian, have you misread your relationship with God and think you are so important and so significant that you are needed for the growth of his church and the expansion of his kingdom? Let me drill down just a bit further here. Kind of on a roll. Let's apply this in the context of the local church. Christian, how high do you esteem your gifting? How valuable do you think your counsel and wisdom are? You may not say it out loud, but in your heart, do you think God's church needs you? Think for a moment about how great David was. Think for a moment about how skilled he was. Think for about a moment the great things David has done. And think of how noble his intentions were for building a temple for God. Yet what does God say to him? Nope. I don't need you. You need me, and I'm going to bless you. I, I have a good friend who's a professional horse trainer and a successful one at that. And uh, this buddy of ours, he invited me and my entire family to go out to his barn to see several of the top horses that he had been training. We were invited by him to go onto his property to see the horses he has been training. It was a really, really neat experience. All six of us went. Now imagine with me for a moment that at the end of this visit, he shows us what he does. He shows us these top horses. Imagine with me at the end of that visit if my eight-year-old son came up to him and said, hey, I just want to let you know something. Um, I live on a street that's named after the most famous Kentucky Derby winner of all time, and um, I'm also really good at drawing horses. And I was kind of walking around, and I'd like, to, I'd like to meet with you so I could give you a couple of pointers about how you can improve as a trainer. Call my dad, he'll set it up. Okay? Imagine, what would be happening in that moment? My son would be completely misreading 
that relationship, wouldn't he? Even though he had the best of intentions. Well, that's kind of what God, or that's kind of what David is doing with God. So God kindly and graciously reminds David of where he came from and what God has already done for him. All this to underscore the point, God doesn't need him, he needs God. And faith, the same is true for us. Now, I hope not, but some of you might hear this and think, okay, fine. Lord doesn't need me. I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go home. I'm going to take my money. I'm going to take my gifting. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend it on myself. If that is you, Christian, I must warn you that such thinking is completely antithetical to the purpose for which you've been saved. The Bible goes out of its way to let all Christians know that you've been called to live for Christ in all areas of your life rather than yourself. But furthermore, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? This is to say any resources, any gifting you have are not yours to begin with. Rather, they've been given to you by a gracious, giving God. That's why instead of taking your ball and going home in response to this truth, the correct way to respond to this biblical truth is to not only acknowledge that God doesn't need you, but you need Him, but rather to see God for who He truly is, and that is the one true and living God who is worthy, 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 worthy of my complete devotion to Him. The correct response is to say, God, you are worthy for me to live for you in each and every moment of my day. Lord, please use me how you see fit. Whatever that might be, I give everything to you, God, with an open hand. I don't set the terms of the relationship. God does. He doesn't need me. I need him. And our God is a gracious God. So in fact, in the, in the time we have left, I just want to, what I want to do is I just want to draw out several applications that I think this text presses upon our hearts. There are three believe, I believe this passage highlights. And the first is this. Since God doesn't need you, need you and you need him, I think this text is directing us to do this, and that is to first, to inquire of the Lord, not people. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Follow your heart, David. I've never been on the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And my guess is you haven't either. Yet even though I've never been on the show, you know what I've done? I've given a lot of thought to who would be my phone-a-friend. <laughs> have you? Be honest. If you're on that show, have you given thought of who the one person is you would call, right? But even if you haven't given thought of if you're on that show and you had phone-a-friend, who would you call? 
my guess is there is someone in your life you frequently turn to to help answer life's questions. Right? Who is that for you? I want you to notice that David and Nathan are doing a lot of things in these opening three verses. First, they're, they're enjoying the rest that God has given them from their enemies. They're enjoying fellowship with one another. I can kind of imagine them, you know, having a cup of coffee, you know, in the cool of the morning. They're catching up. They're talking. In fact, they're, they're doing a lot of things. They're even talking about the Lord. But you know what neither of them are doing as they're considering to make a major decision? Neither of them are inquiring of the Lord. When you place this episode in the context of the entire book of 2 Samuel, something stands out as rather odd concerning David. And you know what that is? It's that David is not asking the Lord what to do. I mean, consider what we've observed throughout 2 Samuel. The author of 2 Samuel goes out of his way to show us that whenever David's about to make a major or significant decision, or any decision for that matter, the first thing he does is he inquires of the Lord. Think back to the chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. Before David is anointed king in Judah, what's the text say? He inquires of the Lord. Or think back to chapter 5, twice in chapter 5. Before David moves any of his men, for a military war, he inquires of the Lord. This is a pattern we see with David. What does the Lord want me to do? What does the Lord want me to do? What does the Lord want me to do? But we don't see that here. And faith, I think there's an application for us. Since it is quite true that God doesn't need us, but rather we need him, we ought to always inquire of the Lord rather than people and concerning life's decisions. Now, please hear me. This is not to say we ought not seek the counsel and advice of others. Yes, we should. However, the advice of people, even godly people, is not on the same level as God's perfect and holy word. Now, this exchange between David and Nathan illustrates this point. In his commentary on this book, pastor and author Richard Phillips makes this helpful observation. He writes this. He says, Nathan's endorsement of David's temple building scheme shows us the difference between the best reasoning of godly men and the word of God. It is evident that Nathan answered David according to his own spiritual judgment not having consulted with the Lord because God intervenes to correct his thinking. This is to say, faith, and this is my encouragement to you from this text, in all your ways acknowledge him. That is, seek his wisdom as revealed in his word, not simply the spiritual judgment of man. Now again, this isn't to say we can't glean wisdom from other Christians, we can. But it's helpful insofar as it is biblical. This, this past week, I was at the National and Annual Conference of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors in Charlotte. And one of the many things I love about 
the conference that I was at, and one of the many things I love about the organization and why I'm so proud to be a part of it is because they labor very hard to make sure that people in that conference that are associated counsel people biblically. We don't need more Nathans like this that are banking on their own spiritual judgment. We need people that are pointing each other to the Word of God. So I think there's another application here for us. If someone does come to you seeking counsel, don't say, well, I think. Say, let's look at God's Word. What would He have us to do? And this is, I think, the first point that this text raises. Since you need God, inquire of the Lord, not people. So, so the main takeaway, people, is make this your lifeline. Not your feelings, not your intuition, not a podcast, not a blogger. God's Word. Which leads to the second application, and that is act on God's Word, not your zeal. Look again at 4 and 5. There's a correction here to the zeal. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And the answer is no. Several years ago, the Babylon Bee ran this article. Gridlock reached as two men both certain God told them to date same girl. The article begins with these words, stressing the precariousness of the situation, inside sources confirmed Tuesday that a gridlock had been reached in the social lives of David Gall, 23, and Mark Cormer, 26, as both men are absolutely 100% certain that God has personally instructed them to date local 22-year-old Stephanie Fair. Quote, I sought God's will and he told me to date Stephanie. Gall confidently declared to sources, I know he did. There's no doubt in my mind. Quote, God definitely told me to date Stephanie, Cormer similarly observed. The signs he gave me were crystal clear. What am I supposed to do, disobey God? <laughs> the article says this, concludes with this, Three discussion attempts between the two men have reportedly made no headway and have simply reinforced each man's belief that the other lacks godliness and is possibly being influenced by demonic forces. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, the Babylon Bee is a satire site. Okay, this is satire. But what I love about this article is that it playfully points out how we can often deceive ourselves into thinking that our passions are divinely inspired. David has a zeal for the Lord. Indeed, he has a noble zeal, but it was misguided. John Calvin provides some real helpful pastoral application, commenting on how both David and Nathan got it wrong. Listen to these words of, of Calvin. It's quite convicting. He says, 
if that happened to such an excellent prophet, what might it be with us who are not nearly so advanced in the knowledge of the truth of God? Let us remember that whenever we are strongly motivated to honor God, let us not be guided by our own imagination. Let us not attempt anything beyond his word, but rather be so in line with it that we allow him to govern us and guide us by the path he knows to be right. Can I just say, that it's a sign of Christian maturity to not act on your impulses, but instead submit such impulses, no matter how noble they might be, to the Word of God. What are you passionate about? What do you sense God's calling you to do? How many how many guys I met in Bible college that were so convinced that God was calling them to do some noble thing. So convinced. And rather, all that was happening was they had confused their passions as being divine instruction. What are you passionate about? What do you sense God is calling you to do? Friend, I would encourage you to put on a spirit of humility and just consider for a moment that your plans may not be God's. If you're going to act, act on the clear, authoritative instruction from God's word, not your own zeal or as Calvin tells us, imagination. Then the last thing I want to draw to your attention, since you need the Lord, rejoice that God is near, not distant. Because notice what God says about himself here in verses 6 and 7. Consider for a moment the point, actually, that God is trying to get across to David, and by extension, us. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying, This has been my, the way I want to go about. I want to be with my people no matter where they are at. That's why I want a tent, so I have access. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says about this passage. He says this. He says, Do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He is the God who travels with his people and all their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So he is the pilgrim God sharing the rigors of the journey with them. What great comfort from this, Christian, isn't there? that God is near. He's not distant. Yet, this is what I want to say as we, as we bring things in for landing here. Christian, please hear me. As great as it was 
for Israel to have the Lord traveling alongside them, Christian, in Christ, we have God traveling in us. Friend, the good news of the Bible is that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish everything necessary for sinful people like you and me to be saved from the coming judgment for our sin. Remember what Steve said a few moments ago in our monthly memory verse, God is faithful to judge. That includes you, friend. And if you're outside of Christ, your sin. Because you see, in our natural state, it's not simply that we believe we don't need God. That's true. But no, it goes further than that. It's not that we just don't need God. We're hostile towards God. We willfully reject God's rightful rule in our lives, and instead we choose to live for ourselves. And just look at your life. My guess is there are evidences all over the place you've put yourself first rather than God. And friend, such cosmic treason deserves just condemnation from God. Yet this is what makes the Bible such good news. Please hear me. Instead of God letting us die in our sins, and he would be just to do that, what does he do? He's a God who gives. He's made provision for our sin. He's made for provision for us to escape his coming judgment. And that is through the cross of his son, Jesus. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of God, owed you for your sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be the son of God. And the incredible author of the Bible. Incredible is that this salvation, forgiveness of sins, accepted by God, the hope of heaven, this freely justified, this salvation can be yours simply by, hear me, faith. Friend, have you done that? Have you put your faith in Christ alone to save you? And I need, I need to clarify, that word alone is really important. I'm not saying put your faith in Christ. Lots of people do that. I'm saying go all in. Like we talked about, you say, God, the only thing I can bring to my salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. I am helpless to save myself. I'm believing that what Christ done on the cross for me is sufficient to save me, and I'm going all in on that. That's saving faith. It's an exchange where I'm no longer trusting in myself and I'm trusting in Christ. Have you done that? Because for those of you who have, friend, please hear me, Jesus not only saves you, but better than the Ark of the Covenant, God gives you his spirit to dwell in you. Now that means, Christian, you are never alone, ever. The Lord is always present at hand, no matter what type of wilderness experience you might be going through. And some of you are going through a real hard wilderness right now. Yet praise the Lord, he has not left you known. He's with you by his spirit, amen? Is that not good news? Faith, God doesn't need us. But you know what? He wants to use us. Indeed, his church is plan A for reaching this world. 
May we be found to be humble, God-honoring servants of our King. Amen? Let's pray.